Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day, I'm Pete Hollands and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Australian champion Peter Hollands about what it's like to be the world's most popular bridge streamer and how being able to stand in another person's shoes makes him a better player and a better teacher. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm well, Catherine. How are you? Oh, I am well. Thank you very much. I, I have been feeling very slightly sorry for myself. I was just so mindful that the Chicago Nationals were on last week. Well, they finished just over a week ago. And I, I had really wanted to be there. I'd hoped that you and I might be able to go and... You know, we weren't, but I've been watching all the results and everything. And so I was just feeling a bit funny about bridge, I have to say. But, you know, then I consoled myself by by going to a game that I hadn't been to yet. It was um, not so much an organized club game, but a regular bridge group that meets at a public library. <laughs> it was really cute. It was really cute. So I went along to this game and they they play every week and it's all very organized and it's the same people there and I was so amused because it it didn't seem to matter that it was in a library and outside of the usual structure of bridge clubs there was still exactly the same cast of characters (laughs) there you know (laughs) there was the person everyone was trying to avoid and there was (laughs) the good player and there was the player who thought they knew everything but didn't know what they were doing you know it's like this whole thing. And um, I mentioned something about Chicago when I was there and they had no idea that it was going on or that 
they just were in the world of their own and had no idea of the the breadth of the bridge community and the layers and structures that existed in so many different realms of the bridge world. And they're just so interesting because you and I engage so much with with that detail. It it was eye-opening to understand that there were these pockets of people who take it very seriously in their way who've got no idea at all about all that other stuff. And I suppose I had no idea that you could have no idea about all that other stuff. So was this a duplicate game with a director and everything? It wasn't duplicated. It was Chicago. So they would play, um, I think they were playing four rounds and, you know, one round everyone's vulnerable, the next round no one's vulnerable. I've, someone's going to correct us or tell me there's, a, there's an, a structure to who's vulnerable and when and why and then it's just the highest score. But it's definitely an organized game, like yeah. a club game. Yeah. But, yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. Bridge doesn't have to be played in any particular way to be completely enjoyable and wonderful. And you can have fantastic party bridge, fantastic kitchen bridge, family bridge, And then you can do like the whole tournament circuit or you can do a regular organized excellent game that doesn't necessarily depend on a formal external structure or something like that, that we're we're kind of used to. And we can't really imagine that, you know, people can find out how how did you find out about this Chicago game in the library? Oh, well, you know, my friend Google. (laughs) <laughs> I just looked up, you know, games in London and, and there it was. And it was one I'd been meaning to go to because it clearly was organized. Like it, the date was updated on the website every week. Like someone was paying attention. I thought, oh, okay. And it seemed like it was going to be in an interesting location. And I always like to ferret out interesting locations. And again, you know, the people were so nice and, and fascinating. But I just was gobsmacked to find myself in a situation where, it was at once both really organized and serious and yet completely just unaware of all that other stuff. And in a way it was great too because I, like I said, I was feeling ever so slightly miffed that I hadn't been able to go to the Nationals. And so it was just refreshing, I suppose, to see that there were other ways of being and doing it. And I was also mindful that we'd had Bronya on the show, the new executive director of the ACBL, and she was talking about how bridge organizations or you know need to represent all bridge players and I thought well yeah she's right you know there are these kinds of bridge players also all over yeah all over yeah Yeah. we don't all have to be doing the same thing no in order for it to be a fantastic game that a lot of people can enjoy I mean you know when I've played in these home games those are very enjoyable and it's lovely and it's with a lot of the same people that I play at the club but it's just a new setting and it's very, it's a breath of fresh. Yeah, it's making me think I should maybe look at opportunities to play more casually sometimes because I think it just might put some of the fun back into it. It's great to take it seriously and obviously that's really fun and I especially like playing with you in a really competitive situation. But mm, sometimes maybe it's fun just to to chill and play and giggle a bit and, yeah, just have a game. <laughs> yes. Agreed. And it also reminds me of our more the merrier initiative where we we want to think about getting more people playing bridge 
in any setting, in any capacity. So it kind of really fits in with that. We're all part of the global bridge community, but that doesn't mean we all have to do it the same way. There is room for everyone. We have a full mailbag this week, Jocelyn. I have three letters for you. <laughs> well, bring it on, Catherine, because you know I love the letters. <laughs> I do know that, and I very much enjoy your enthusiasm when I tell you I'm about to read them to you. Our first letter today is from Linda in Tallahassee, Florida, and the subject line is What People Won't Do to Play Bridge. <laughs> My bridge partner and I were invited to play in the Swiss teams in the Denver Regional this May. It seemed hard trying to find a qualifying game online that would work for the four of us because we're all very busy, but we found one and signed up. The day of the game, I decided to do a little work in my yard, waiting for the game at 5pm. I got my battery-operated hedge trimmer out and was going to town on some bushes. My left pointer finger got caught in the teeth somehow and about cut the tip off it, blood spewing everywhere. I grabbed a towel and wrapped it around my finger. My neighbour drove me to the emergency room since I couldn't drive myself. This happened two hours before the game was to start. Thank goodness I grabbed my laptop because nothing is easy at the emergency room. I got there and they said it wouldn't take long, but of course it did. I had to play this game in the middle of them taking x-rays, giving me a tetanus (laughs) shot and deadening my finger and sewing it up. What can I say? I took one for the team. It all turned out well and we qualified. P.S. I will never look at ground beef the same way again. Oh, gross. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. What a story. What a story, but good job, Linda. And amazing composure to think of grabbing your laptop in the middle of that hoo-ha. Oh, my God, with the with the blood spurting and the, oh, my God, the missing fingertip. Yes, yes. I hope your teammates were suitably appreciative. Our next letter today, Jocelyn, is from Alan, who's written to us before about how it's better to be lucky sometimes than good. <laughs> and he has yet another example. Recently, I was playing in the open pairs at a regional with a last-minute partner match from the partnership desk. Quite early on, we arrived at what could fairly be called the Table of Doom, an expert pair that the previous two days had finished first overall in this event. Gulp. On the third board of our set, I was the dealer and opened one no trump with a balanced 15-point hand. Left-hand opponent passed, partner bid two diamonds, and right-hand opponent passed. Of course, I dutifully and happily, holding King Jack X, bid two hearts. This was passed around to my right-hand opponent, who promptly doubled. I experienced a slight uh-oh, but really had no option but to pass, as did the left-hand opponent and my partner. Dummy came down and my partner's heart suit, five cards to the eight-seven, was a bit worrisome. But the heart split 3-2 and we had just enough high card juice to scrape in eight tricks for a beautiful plus 470 and a clear top. I have a feeling this pair had profited frequently from doubling obviously inexperienced patsies like me. So it felt very good for once to turn the tables. 
But I was also mindful not to get cocky because I was well aware that this was another example of it being better to be lucky at times than good. Well, the thing is, Alan did everything he was supposed to do. Yeah. That was the best place to put the contract from the perspective of partner as well as Alan. So they were good too. They got lucky that they got doubled in a <laughs> in a makeable contract and they made it despite probably as strong a defense as the expert players put on. So great. But I think he did good, not just lucky. Not just lucky, lucky and good. Lucky and good. The best combination. <laughs> yeah. The best combo, Alan, well done. And our last letter today, Jocelyn, is from Peter, and he and his wife support the show. So thanks so much, Peter and Michelle. Thank you. Peter writes about a story that occurred at the 2023 Gold Coast Congress. I was playing in the under-1500 teams event where my partner and I found a fit. We cubid, launched into Roman keycard, and eventually reached seven no trump. But here's the twist in the tale. My right-hand opponent doubled. Weird. I was tempted to redouble as I was very confident, but caution won the day. Our opponents asked for a detailed explanation of the bidding, and to my horror, I discovered my partner had had a brain fart and gave the wrong response to my four-no-trump roaming keycard ask. He blindly told the table that his five-diamond response was, two key cards when we and the rest of the civilized world play it for none or three. Oh my God, now the double made sense. I was missing an ace. Fortunately, my left-hand opponent was on lead and as luck would have it, found the wrong one and I made the contract. Seven no trump doubled for 2,400. Huzzah! Wow. This was the first board in a 14-board match. The result gutted our opponents and set us up for an easy win. Oh, the joys of bridge. <laughs> yeah. That's called lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So if you have any fun stories about the lengths you'll go to for bridge or about whether it's better to be lucky or good or lucky and good, Please send them to us or leave us a voice message. These links are on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Peter Hollins. Australian champion Peter Hollins has represented Australia as a junior and on the Open team. He has won several national tournaments in Australia and New Zealand, and was the non-playing captain of the 2019 Australian Mixed Team. He is also the world's most popular bridge streamer. His YouTube channel, Bridge Vid, is chock full of videos with lessons and analysis, all delivered in his warm, laid-back style that makes him a hit with bridge players of all levels. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. With me, I don't remember really successful hands. Some of my favorite hands are sort of stories where I get into an absolute terrible spot and like just the recovery mission. And I really enjoy some of those. And it, it doesn't even need to be making the contract. Uh, one hand that 
happened pretty recently was me and my partner had a bidding misunderstanding. It was a pretty unusual auction where I was actually trying to play in the opponent's suit. They'd opened a two spade bid, which only showed four spades and it showed a club suit as well. But at any point I started by passing and then I tried to play in spades, but convincing my partner that I was actually trying to play in the suit that they had opened two of. Well, I I got there eventually, but I was at the sixth level doubled. (laughs) So then in the play of it, because of the bid that they'd made that described their hand really well, I'd managed to like do some really deep finesses of playing for trumps to break badly and taking roughing finesses and just sort of like knowing where all the cards are. And they're some of my favorite hands. But I got out for down one. And what could have been an absolute disaster, we managed to only get a small negative score. But I think the cherry on top was that most people that played in four spades didn't have all the information and were going off anyway. (laughs) So something that looked terrible ended up being like, oh, yeah, that was, that was fun. What's your earliest memory of bridge? So I learned bridge when I was 14 years old. Um, my parents actually taught me on family holidays. So we were up at the beach and just sort of sitting around the table. I was actually playing with my grandfather who was, didn't really know how to play. He was sort of learning as well. And anytime I sort of had to think, uh, he started to slowly nod off because he was getting pretty old. So I think my grandfather falling asleep while I was learning to play bridge was one of my uh, first memories that we did. Um, when I got back from the holiday, I still had that passion about it. And uh, my parents sent me along to a youth club. So I've got heaps of memories from just playing and learning with all these different juniors. And we, we just had Friday night card sessions. And that was just some of the my favorite things growing up just every Friday night. We'd all get together and throw some cards around and it wasn't always bridge there was all kinds of various trick-taking games that we we played along the way and yeah that was sort of like my early bridge life that uh, yeah. and was that in australia yeah uh so that was in melbourne um andrew mill was my teacher and uh, he was on this podcast previously and he ran a youth club in melbourne for almost forever it seems like at least 20 plus years. There's all these generations of youth players uh, in Victoria that grew up under his tuition. And as I was coming in, uh, we were sort of some of the last that he taught because uh, his kids were just starting to grow up and I grew up with them learning to play. So can you tell us more about some of those bridge sessions, those early bridge sessions? Yeah. So basically we'd rock up. There was maybe 12 junior players all from Victoria that would come. We'd usually start with a game called Up and Down the River where it was just sort of like a trick-taking game where you had to guess how many you'd start with one card and then go up to seven and then back down or the other way around. And you'd have to guess how many of the cards you're actually going to win. And that was just like this introduction to doing that. And then uh, up on the, there was like a whiteboard where there would just be like one problem hand. And just as you go throughout the night, at some point it would pique your interest and you You'd have a look at it and you'd try and come back to it. And right towards the end of the hand, uh, Andrew would be going through it and explaining that. Um, after we did that, we would uh, we'd play bridge for a couple of hours or basically it was just very a natural way of going. When people had enough, we sort of stopped and then you know, we would put on some music, we'd just relax and just have a fun Friday night to do it. So it was just a 
really a social atmosphere where you passively learn to play cards and play bridge and pick up the enjoyment of the game that way. So it sounds like in many ways it replicates what we think of as possibly a kind of previous generation's experience where they might have learned hanging around their parents who were playing maybe socially at home and it was just part of what was going on and there wasn't that pressure. It was much more about fun. (laughs) Definitely. You were never actually told, hey, don't do that. You're doing it wrong or something. But if you went down, you'd go, oh, was there anything I could do? And you'd take time and open up all the cards and it would just explain different options as you go through and you can go, oh, okay, but I was trying to do this. And you might have had like a really good thought process of what you were trying to achieve, but your execution of it wasn't quite right. And it was always like this super patient, really uh, good teacher that went through that ways and amazing way to learn. And I think the Victoria reaped a really strong youth foundation from all the hard work that it put in. And I'm certainly very fortunate from uh, coming through that. Was it a competitive environment? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we weren't ever playing for master points. I'm not sure there was ever really scoring, but the individual drive to try and beat each other, that was definitely there. <laughs> so not your traditional competitive format, but uh, we also got to try and form different partnerships and we knew who was sort of the best players. And I remember... I was always super driven to try and play with the best player that I I could find. When I rocked up, I was just starting with one of my friends that I I dragged along. Um, But as his interest started to to wane, I was like, oh, well, you know, one of the other good players, uh, Justin, who was the best at the time, I was like, he was a bit of a prickly teenager at the time, but you needed someone kind of uh, can hold his temperament at the time. And uh, basically the way I like to think it, is that he taught me how to actually play bridge. I taught him how to be a good partner. So that was like our our joining of partnerships. And I think we both bettered each other in uh, that way. And when did you start to feel that you were good at the game, that you knew you had a facility with it? Uh, that's a weird thing that I feel like I have imposter syndrome and I never actually felt like I was good. I would always get to these spots and get good results and like, those other people are so much better. They, they could talk about the game and you could understand their thought process. I'm like, wow, that's really clever. And all I was good at is saying, oh, I made this mistake. That was really silly. I did that again. So at every level I managed to achieve, I don't think I've ever gotten there and actually believed that I deserve to be there. Like I made my state team and I was like, oh, I guess I got dragged along to, to that as a youth player. Then I managed to make the Australian under 21 team and then, each level up, I was like, oh, wow, but there are so many of these good players. Why aren't they? And it's really hard to kick that feeling. Uh, but I've pretty much always had that until you've been at that level for over a year. And you're like, maybe, okay, something I'm doing right. I don't know what it is, but okay, I guess I can. I'm not as bad as I guess I am. So you've just kind of accepted that you must be not too bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you did love it from that first time yeah i absolutely loved it right from the get-go i just had like this like before we did that i had always played cards but just the unending learning that you could get from it i just always had that passion and wanting to to learn and be able to discover new ways to do it better and enjoy the game so it's one of these things that i don't think i've ever really lost either some people say do you burn out in the game but 
I've never lost it. I've always enjoyed it and find new ways to keep enjoying it. Have you ever taken a break from bridge? I've never really taken breaks from bridge, but there's times where I didn't want to be as competitive. Uh, after I'd made the Australian team, I felt like, hey, I've achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. Or I didn't even think that I could make the Australian team when I made it. Back to like how my belief of when I what I could do. So after that, then I was like, okay, I really enjoy it, but I want to just take downtime and play it more socially and with different people and find other ways to really enjoy the game that isn't always the intense playing at the uh, absolute highest level there. So how did you go from Friday nights at the Youth Bridge group to actually playing on a team or in tournaments, more competitive bridge? Yeah, I, I guess I got sort of sucked into it from that youth club. So they had national championships, which are like state versus state competitions. And there's a youth session, youth team that's uh, put into that. And the first year that we were playing, Melbourne was actually hosting it. And they put in a special consideration of seeing as they're juniors and it's the home place, can we just have a team of eight instead of the regular six people? And then they basically managed to get eight of the, the more willing and addicted people onto it. I was terrible. I was so bad. Throughout that tournament, we were battling really, really hard for last and second last place. And we managed to just <laughs> narrowly pip the other people out of it. And then from there, I was like, hey, this is really cool. And uh, later tournaments, when I had a bit more experience, then I was like, yeah, let's keep playing on the state team. Because once I got that taste of it, I got really hooked and managed to make the uh, state junior team quite frequently. And from there... We started going to the Australian National Championships. And at the time, they'd just introduced an under-21s category as well, which was pretty new. They hadn't done it before. So my timing for this was just absolutely impeccable. Couldn't have asked for more. And then I got to go away on the Australian under-21s team, and we went to New Zealand and Thailand. And from there, just being able to get a bit of success behind me managed to build it all from there. So really good timing at the first place and just being told, hey, you're on the uh, state team without actually trialing just because it was literally in my home state and they uh, got special consideration for that. So you're known for your very instructive videos. And I'm wondering if part of the reason that you are such an effective communicator in the videos is because of a certain amount of empathy for your viewer and what they're going through as they try to learn some complicated device or um, hand pattern or counting method? Yeah, um, I think one of my, probably one of my strengths as a bridge player is appreciating what kind of mistakes people can make. So it's not all the brilliant plays, but, oh, this is a way that I can give my opponents ways to make errors. And I think that I've put lots of effort into that for my own game so that when I'm trying to play and teach people, I feel like I can see the mistakes that people encounter and uh, have to try and overcome. And then what sort of steps do you do to actually do that? And in my partnership, that one of our strengths was trying to pose different problems and just make life tough for your, your opponent. That's one of my favorite aspects of the game is just making it hard for the opponent, whether they get over it or not, 
giving them those challenges and giving them that is something I really enjoy, which I think then translates to when I'm trying to teach people, well, these are the problems that you're going to encounter and what can you do? I don't see like while people might want to learn about the fancy plays of end plays and squeezes, they, they don't really help. It's sort of getting those normal hands and making them so you don't mess up partway through and what sort of errors can you overcome? I feel like that's the main part and that's really where my focus on my uh, YouTube videos has sort of been. For all your patients, have you ever had a student who just doesn't get it? Uh, not really. Like... That's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> There's always people that have a limit, but whether they can... I, I know that they're not going to achieve greatness, but they can always try and improve. So that's the way I... Oh, you just shouldn't that. talk about me on, on the show like that. <laughs> well, I was wondering if there are any categories that are easy to describe as far as students of the game, as you're encountering this type of student versus this type of student versus this type of student? And how do you calibrate your videos to kind of reach all the different types of students? Or perhaps they're not so easily categorizable. Yeah. Um, so there's people that want to just listen along and just enjoy and see what happens and what can happen. And then there's also people that will play the hands, they'll pause the video, they'll check what they did and why didn't I think that way or uh, now nah, Pete's off his rocker today, it's, it's not playing that one well. So I want to make it enjoyable for the people that just want to passively learn, but I also want it to be that people that are taking their time and want to pick apart the videos can really get something out of. Um, and it's a very fine line to walk, but that's ultimately what I try and target there. You're the most popular bridge streamer in the world. How long have you been doing it? Uh, I forget now, but I think it's about seven years or so that I've been doing it. I started just before the cheating scandal came out, give or take. So that was 2015. Again, that's eight years. Uh, time flies, doesn't it? So yeah, I started just before then. And like my first videos would have been so bad. I, I'm really scared to go back and actually watch how terrible I was. So. <laughs> That's on the to-do list at some point, but very nervous about that. But I actually just kicked them off because how I actually learned other games. I was just noticed. I, I love all kinds of games, not just bridge. And the way that I'd, I'd learn is I'd jump on YouTube and try and find the best person doing it. And I'd talk about it. I was like, oh, no one's doing it for bridge. Hey, I'll start. <laughs> what can go wrong? <laughs> and is it just you or is there a, a team behind you? Uh, no, just me. Uh, my wife, Laura, um, she sometimes gives me ideas or motivation, but yeah, <laughs> just me really. Are you doing it from home? Yeah. Not that anyone can see, but I moved house and I, the first thing I did was paint my wall green. <laughs> I used to be renting and I had a green screen that I'd have in just a little office and basically a shack out back where I could do it. But once I managed to move house, I was like, yeah, first thing doing, painting a wall green, getting that all set up. And yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you ever run into your fans when you're out and about? All the time. <laughs> And it, there's some weird interactions, but I also uh, love it. So one of the tournaments I went to previously, um, someone from England came up and asked for a photo. Loved when people come up, introduce themselves, and uh, happy to do that. So if you ever see me at a tournament, please come up, please say hi. I really enjoy it. The one thing that is really confusing, though, is sometimes people don't appreciate that I don't know them. So I've had people <laughs> come up and just be like, Oh, hey, it's great to see you. And now when I meet someone that I should know, but I've forgotten who they are, it's really hard to distinguish those two apart. So <laughs> please come up. But if you do, say hi and who, who you are. <laughs> How they know you. Yeah. <laughs> What's the funniest place you've run into someone? Uh, just in a men's toilet that someone's uh, leaned over and was like, oh, hey. And they're like... <laughs> Wanted to shake my hand and uh, like, uh, <laughs> I guess there's a time and a place really for it. So what's the most unexpected place that you've found yourself playing bridge? The places that I play have been rather routine, but one of the places was Canberra, just in the middle of winter. Oh, I agree. That's a very strange place to be playing bridge. <laughs> I'm sorry to all the Canberrans listening. You can forgive me. <laughs> but at the venue, basically they had some power issue and the heating hadn't kicked on or wouldn't turn on. And it was the coldest Canberra day. It was below freezing. And everyone there was playing bridge in ski clothes. It was kind of surreal to see. They had gloves <laughs> on, beanies, big puffer jackets, all trying to hold these cards. And the other issue is if you wanted to go get like a drink, the fridges weren't working either. So like, you'd get a warm drink, you'd take it outside, put it out in the cold. It could stay inside. It would nearly freeze anyway. <laughs> but just watching like these swaths of people all playing in this outlandish stuff for bridge was kind of surreal to see. 
So not a strange place, but a strange sort of occurrence there. But that was only for one day, luckily. They managed to get it fixed for the remainder of it. That's hilarious. What's the craziest bridge experience you've had? One time uh, I went to a just small club when we were actually going to a music festival. We went to the Port Ferry Folk Festival. And Port Ferry has this teeny tiny little bridge club. But there's actually a group of, I don't know, six to eight really good bridge players that were going to this music festival. And what we'd do is we'd just pick random partners and we would rock up and we, we came for just a, a fun time and just to have a good social game with the people down there. And um, what was happening was they have like an intermission, but halfway through my partner actually had to leave and there was, there was no one that was there to actually play. They had to go back to pick someone up to bring them to the music festival. So over the next, I think they had like a half an hour break, we went around the festival grounds and we're asking people, hey, do you want to come play bridge? (laughs) And I managed to rope in a guy called Tony, lovely guy. Uh, He'd had this tiny experience of playing 500. He was like, sure, why not? And uh, dragged him in. I told him the uh, brief mechanics of the game and said, if people look at you weirdly, just just bid something or play a card. I really didn't give him much more instruction than that. But I did say, unlike 500, if you pass, you can come back in because anyone that plays 500, once you pass, you can't keep bidding. So I figured I'd distinguish of like this, the jacks are normal jacks. Don't worry about that. And if you pass, you can, you can bid again later. But one hand that I remember from playing with him is I, went, I was fourth seat and I went pass, 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 and I've got two points. <laughs> I'm like, something's gone wrong here, but whatever it is, I'm passing. And it turns out he had 20 points. but I actually thought this was really brilliant. He's like, oh, what happened? I was like, oh, if everyone passes that the hand's thrown in. He's like, oh, what I was trying to do is I figured I'd pass, see what the opponents wanted to do, and then I could start bidding because the one thing I told him is if you pass, you can come back in. And I thought (laughs) that is just genius. I loved that. I thought that was amazing. But playing with him, we actually managed to come second in the the, uh, duplicate. So had like this awesome time. Never saw him again, but if he's out oh. there, I reckon. Tony, Tony. <laughs> come up and say hi to Pete. <laughs> Just make sure you tell him who you are. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Is there a hot button issue in bridge that's particularly important to you? I think the way that people teach bridge really has to be revisited. I think it can be done so much better. Often you get the questions of, is bridge dying? The age is getting up. And I think this is a completely solvable problem. It's how we teach bridge. I think there's too much of a focus on people have to learn all these different conventions when the fun part of bridge isn't, oh, hey, I did stamen. I did stamen again. How good was that? I don't actually <laughs> see people celebrating bidding stamen, but they enjoy the card play. They enjoy the bidding decisions that come up. And I think that you want to be able to focus introducing that aspect to new players as quickly as possible. Uh, whereas I think lots of beginner places get bogged down on, okay, let's teach them doubles and uh, we'll teach them transfers and stamen and Blackwood. And that's, I don't think, very necessary. Like at some point, sure, you need to learn it, but I don't think that's necessary for getting people in the, in the door. But how would you organise it, Pete? Because I think part of the reason they do that is 
it's sort of easy in a way to hang a curriculum up and say, we're going to have lessons. This is what we're going to teach. If you were going to, you know, pretend you're running a club, how would you try to infuse it with a bit more of that, that fun? I think it would be good to like show a roadmap of where you can get to like, Hey, we want to get you in playing bridge and bidding. Uh, We're going to focus on card play and how you can try and reach game contracts and bid like that. But down the line, here are some of the things that you can try and learn. All these different conventions, if you see other people using, we do run these lessons here. When you feel ready for it, come jump in. It's not mandatory. You don't need to play these conventions. But if you think that you might be useful, you can come back to that. I also think there needs to be a better way to teach people online. I sometimes have people say, oh, where should I go if I want to learn online? And I literally don't know where to recommend people. Like there's some sites that you can jump in. And then if you just start playing, you might get harassed and go back. Or you might play with robots. And then you can look at what the the bids are, but you, you wouldn't understand why that is. You could jump in and do like a just declare thing and stuff, but there's nothing, like if someone wants to learn, it's far from obvious how they should actually do it themselves. Where should they actually start? There's no guidance there. And I feel like that's something that really needs to be addressed. Do you think that it should be addressed by the national bridge organizations or is it a World Bridge Federation issue? Who who should take this on? Uh, I feel like... Anyone that does it will see reap massive rewards. So anyone that <laughs> yeah. wants to make Bridge popular and make money out of it should consider it. Bridge platforms could create like a tutorial where if you're a new player, you can say, I want to learn. And then it chucks you in and it says, okay, short video or something. Here's how the mechanics work. Hey, let's take a finesse and start clicking through and doing that without actually having to work your way through and then find the right spots. I think national organizations could do it. The ACBL did do a learn to play bridge app, which was, I reckon, a decent first attempt. But I think it's probably a touch outdated and could be improved. Or if they want to stand by that, then make it more abundantly clear how to find that. It seems like the bridge style of bridge education is is still very much modelled on the world that used to be and and we need to catch up with the way that people are coming into the game now. You, know, you can't assume people have a basic understanding because they grew up watching their parents or grandparents. It's not the same world anymore. And yeah, so we need to find a more accessible way to jump in. Yeah, like lots of people that want to come to the game haven't been playing card games all their life. Right. Uh, so starting at Tricks and Trumps is an important starting ground, whereas uh, most previous people playing, learning to play bridge would have played that and then maybe 500 and the concept of biddings right there. (laughs) And then the other interesting thing is I feel like as time goes on, conventions and system gets more detailed and more refined and honed in on. But if you were learning bridge back in the 50s or something, the level of system that you'd have to learn to be on par with the the good players is vastly different from what it is now. Don't get me wrong. I I really like system and I think that's, that's great. But when people are learning that the people teaching feel like, hey, this is necessary to be on a level to compete means that we're raising the barrier of entry when we should be trying to do the opposite. I remember Andrew Robson saying to us too that 
you know, sometimes beginners will be watching more advanced players and they can be seeing completely artificial auctions and having no idea what's going on. Yeah. And there just needs to be more of an effort made to link people in, I guess. Yeah. Are there any books that you find yourself returning to over and over again, and particularly ones that you might recommend to developing players? So my book reading journey has been pretty varied. These days I don't read books that much, but there was a time where I absolutely devoured uh, heaps of books. Um, some of my favorites are um, Killing Defense by Hugh Kelsey. It's, it's a bit dry, the, the bidding's a bit outdated, but the concepts of that are timeless. And if you're passionate to sort of trudge your way through it and appreciate what's going on, I think that's a uh, really good book. A bit more advanced is Eric Rodwell's The Rodwell Files, and it's kind of like this encyclopedia where it covers all these different types of players that even expert players haven't haven't really seen or appreciated. And some of them have the weirdest names. I forget the names now, but uh, like you'll have a laugh at why some of them he names them this. And it's basically a catalog of the different plays and why he's named them to help him try and remember them. So they're two different books that I, I think are pretty good. My uh, history of reading books was at some point I wasn't selected for a team and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go prove next year that I'm going to, like I deserve to be there. And I think I read a hundred plus bridge books in a year, just like, oh yeah, let's do that. And so I read heaps and heaps and heaps of books then. Then after that, it sort of tapered off because I, I'm like, that's too much, let's not do that anymore, so... Don't do as much of that. But, uh... You'd reached peak book. <laughs> what happened after that year of 100 books? Yeah, I got back in the team. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Sometimes you need some setbacks to like really motivate you to try and push yourself to the next level. And I think it was a, like your bridge learning will go like you'll learn heaps and then you plateau for a while and then you learn heaps again. And I was definitely at a time where I was just coasting on like a plateau. But And what is it called when you go backwards? <laughs> <laughs> Regression. <laughs> oh. uh, so familiar, unfortunately. Do you have any specific bridge goals for the future? And my main goals are just trying to make sure that I enjoy myself and try and make sure everyone has a good time as well. I don't want to get bogged down too much in series. I want to have laughs at the table. I, I like it when you're at a table, you hear some people laughing. I know some people are like, oh, shh, we're, we're playing, we're taking it seriously. But obviously not make too much noise, but I do want some of that. So I want to make sure that when I'm playing, it's lighthearted and enjoyable. And the events that I go to, uh, I make sure that the, there's good social settings around or a good environment to actually be playing. That I think that's the type of stuff that I'm really focusing on. At some point, I feel like I'll get the drive to, hey, I want to see how high a level I can play at again, but I don't see that happening in the near future. But down the line, I can tell that as you sort of drift away from that highly competitive thing, there's just this little tug saying, come back, come back for a bit more. You have a couple of small children. Are you hoping to set up a situation where they get to have those bridge sessions with their friends? Like you did? Yeah. Yeah. If they're interested in the game, I would definitely want to try and make sure there's that big social 
uh, atmosphere and a group to go with them. And it's not sort of them just sort of soldiering it alone. I, I love personally like the the friendship group that I've built over the years is just absolutely something that keeps me with the game. So when my kids, if they ever show an interest, I would definitely put a lot of effort into making sure, hey, not just them, let's find some friends, let's get a few people along for sure. Do you have a favorite tournament that you really love to play? Yep. I've got a couple of answers for this. One, the, the, there's three tournaments. If First of all, shout out to the Gold Coast Congress. It is by far the, the best tournament in Australia. So if you're looking for that, that's the one to go through. It's got high competition. It's great setting, social, everything you could want. Good weather. Uh, but there's two other tournaments that are probably my favorites, but uh, lacking the, the high competitive edge. The first one is a friendship group, one that's started in memory of someone who passed away. So uh, we've got something called the Kilvo Cup, where about 20 people ranging from novices through to people that have represented their country rock up. And uh, we have a weekend away where we play bridge and we play Grant Kilvington's system. It was terrible, really bad system, but everyone plays his system and we have laughs and we uh, rem- see stories about him and we reminisce. And the way that it works is if you're winning the tournament, you change partners and you're now playing with the person coming last. So you get this big mixture of who plays with stuff, some really interesting things. And I reckon it's just this fantastic way to play bridge and socialize and, and the, the stories that come out of it are great and it keeps his memory alive and since we've been doing that, it's been six years or so uh, that it's been running. And every year, I just always look forward to it. It's like everything I could ever want. And the final one is the Barrier Reef Tournament, which is uh, actually, it changes location. It's somewhere in Queensland, there's four or five different towns that it rotates between. But I was lucky enough to have a friend that has a yacht and a house at one of the places. And what we would do is we would sail to the bridge competition. So we'd take basically a week off beforehand, we'd get on the boat, we'd all go together and we'd sail down to the Barrier Reef Congress, which is always in this beautiful spot. And it doesn't have like the high competition level, but the relaxed atmosphere, everyone's having a great time. So they're three of my favorite tournaments, all for different reasons. That sounds superb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can recommend it. <laughs> Do you have a favorite bridge convention? <laughs> uh, yes, but it's a bit of a joke convention. All the better. <laughs> uh, basically, me, Laura, and Justin, so Justin, my bridge partner, Laura, my wife, we were brainstorming uh, just funny things we can do and uh, started off with, we really don't like Gerber. So... Our goal was to make Gerber a worse convention. <laughs> Is it possible? <laughs> Apparently, yes. All right. Th- this will hurt your brain, but bear with me. We decided, first step, let's make it a level lower, and we'll make it diamonds instead of clubs. Three diamonds. Three diamonds. And the way people play Gerber is every time you bid four clubs, that's Gerber is how lots of people play it. So we said, every time you bid three diamonds... That's Gerber. Even if it went like transfer <laughs> to diamonds, 
that's over. <laughs> or like two no stamen, I don't have a four-card major. I actually know I'm asking you for aces now. <laughs> um, so we played it as any time someone bid three diamonds, it was Gerber. And then the cherry on top is we decided that the responses were pass shows two. So if you've got one ace, you'd bid three hearts. If you've got two, uh, sorry, if you've got zero aces, you'd bid three hearts. If you've got one ace, you'd bid three spades. And if you've got two, you pass. And the question is, how could you ever possibly use this convention? And Laura and Justin played a tournament and won one of the minor nationals doing this. And the three diamonds Gerber came up multiple times. And the thing that really hurts people's brain is, no, you don't use it for slam bidding. It is terrible to do it. So don't use that. But there's really innovative ways that you can use it. So once you've got this, you're like, oh, actually, I'm favorable. I'm just going to open three diamonds and I'm just going to pass whatever happens. Let's just, who knows where we'll end up. <laughs> or Laura had like unfavorable. She had like a nine card diamond suit or something, but wanted to see how many aces partner had so that should she vulnerable against not sacrifice? She bit it and found out partner had nothing. So she was one of the only people that didn't sacrifice with her nine card diamond suit. But just the, the interesting ways that we're able to, to use it. And it got known as Laura Three Diamonds. I'm not sure she's happy <laughs> that it got attached to her name. But if you want to wheel something out, try it and don't use it for bidding slams. Not recommended. <laughs> So do I dare ask, do you have a convention that you really dislike? <laughs> Gerber. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Gerber is just like something easy to sort of knock down. The main thing about Gerber is I find there's just better uses for four clubs rather than it's actually like a terrible convention. I just feel like there's better things to, to do with it. There's lots of conventions that I don't like playing, but I don't have one that in particular is just like, nah, let's just steer clear of that. Ideally, you would either want to play super intense amounts of system or I'd want to play bare bones, almost nothing. This middle of the road stuff, I'm not a big fan of. How come? Uh, if I'm in just sort of like a pickup partnership, sometimes you'd be amazed how often a misunderstanding can come from when both people think they know a convention. And it comes down to follow-up bids where he's like, oh, I'm not, not so sure. Whereas if you're leaning towards its natural bidding, you're going to have far fewer mistakes. And I feel like you can get to decent spots nearly all the time. Often people will think that, hey, I've learned this convention. That makes me a better bridge player. But it almost never does. For learning a convention to make you better, it needs to come up, needs to solve a problem. You need to have achieved a result that people that haven't wouldn't. And if you ever mess it up within a year, basically, you've lost pretty much your gains. So if I'm going to practice it and it'll come up lots and do it, then I'll, I'll play that. But if people are like, oh, let's do this convention, it might come up once in six months and we're never going to discuss the follow-ups to it, there's always something that can go wrong. What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given? I think it's just make sure you work out how to get good feedback. Some people will play bridge and just walk away and never look at their hands. Some people will play bridge and, hey, here's our double dummy analysis. Okay, I shouldn't or should or shouldn't. Double dummy analysis is not a great tool for it. It's, it's something you can fall back on if you're not sure. Uh, but I think it's really important to look at how should you analyze your boards 
such that you can learn what to, to do in the future. If you missed a slam, should we have actually been in that slam? I'll very often get asked the question, how do we bid this slam? And the answer is, well, you shouldn't have been there. So it, it was fine. But if you don't know how to analyze your boards, it's really hard to make really good progress forward. So to do this, you want to be asking the best people that you know. You, you do want to look at double dummy, but not just take it at face value and say, oh, this is what I should have been done. You, you want to ask the question, is it a good contract? Was there something that I should have known about this? And then just ask people questions. The best people that you can find, they usually love being quizzed about, hey, what would you do on this hand or what could be done better? As long as you're not really trying to target and shame your partner for making a, a mistake, that's like, eh, nah. <laughs> but if you've got genuine queries about how to get better, ask them. And I think getting really good feedback is the best thing that you can do to make sure that you, you still improve and go from there. Pete, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been terrific. Thanks, Catherine and Jocelyn. Been a pleasure. Bye, everyone. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Peter Hollins. Thank you also to our sorry partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Peter says, figure out how to get good feedback. It's the best thing you can do to improve your game. <laughs> Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>